It is good to be with you all this morning, and I'm really excited because today we are kicking off uh, a 20-week journey through the book of Revelation. So we're going to be, yeah, walking through the book of Revelation. Lord willing, we'll spend 20 Sundays doing that. It'll actually be more than 20 because we're going to take a a break around the Christmas season. We'll take, I think, about a three-week break, and then we'll pick back up with uh, Revelation in January. But uh, regardless, over the next couple of months, we're going to be walking through uh, this incredible book. And, you know, there, there's definitely a lot of confusion surrounding the book of Revelation. I think many Christians treat the book of Revelation kind of like that really messy closet in your house that you know you need to deal with, but you just never go in there because you don't want to have to deal with it, and so you just keep putting it off, and there's just, it's, it's like a monster. If you open the door, stuff would start pouring out. And we kind of think about the book of Revelation like that. Like, I don't want to deal with it. I'll just deal with that later. I'm going to read Matthew again. Like, maybe one day I'll read Revelation, but I'm not going to deal with that. It it can be an intimidating book. It really can. It can be an intimidating book to approach. But the good news is that the book of Revelation is much more accessible than you realize. That's something that us as, as the pastors of this church, as we've talked about this, our hope is that you all will come to see that and come to be blessed by this book, by the time we're done walking through this journey, because it it really is an amazing uh, book of the Bible that is filled with hope and with encouragement. Um, So the, uh, the, the book of Revelation, it's not, it's not some riddle that we need to solve. It's actually a letter from Jesus to the church. And that's what we hope that you'll see. We're, this morning, we're going to be in the first eight verses of the book of Revelation. It's on page 965 if you're using the Pew Bibles uh, in front of you. You'll notice we have Pew Bibles now, which is awesome. So got those in this week. So if you didn't bring a physical copy of God's Word with you, you're welcome to use one of those. And if you turn to page 965, we will be in the book of Revelation. If you uh, hit the glossary, you've gone too far. I, just, I won't say that in the rest of the series. I just wanted to say it today, okay? Just wanted to get it out of my system. I couldn't help it. I'm good. For those of you who've been around for a while, you know what I'm talking about. So we're going to read Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll start walking through the passage this morning. Here's what God's Word says. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let me pray. God, I thank you so much for your word and that we're told right here in, the pa- in this passage that, we, that blessed are those who read aloud the words of this prophecy. Thank you for the gift of Scripture. Thank you for the gift of your living and active word, which blesses us. It brings blessing to our lives. God, I pray now that you would come and that you would help us to hear. Give us ears to hear and, and to keep what is written in it, God. Because your Revelation 1-3 also said, Blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it. God, you've given us your word and you've given us this instruction in the book of Revelation to bless your people, to help us faithfully endure through the tribulations and the temptations that are coming our way and that will come our way in the future. 
So God, I pray that you would minister to your people this morning. That you'd build up your church and that you would preserve every single one of the members of this church until the day of Jesus' return so that we would all stand blameless before you, God. Help us to continue to hold fast to the gospel and to place our hope in the blood of Jesus that covers our sins. And I pray for the people here that maybe are sleepwalking through life right now and they're not living sober-mindedly, Lord, but they're, they're distracted by the things of the world and they're not living in light of the imminent return of Jesus. And maybe there's some here this morning, God, who are not born again. And if you were to come back right now, Jesus, they would wail on account of you in regret. God, I pray that that you would open up eyes and give ears to hear this morning the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that those who are not born again today would hear the gospel and believe and be saved. God, I want every single person in this room to be there around that throne singing on that day, just like we were this morning, glory and honor and power be to your name. Lord, I don't want anyone in this room to be excluded from that scene. And so I pray, Lord, that you'd be merciful and that you would give us ears to hear today. Lord, we love you, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to kind of do a little bit of introduction to the book of Revelation and give us an overview before we jump into these eight verses in particular, because I think it'll be helpful to set some context. Uh, So these first two verses in Revelation chapter 1 explain that this book is a revelation of Jesus Christ given to the Apostle John to reveal to Jesus' servants, that's us, the church, the things that must soon take place. In other words, the last days. So John received this revelation from Jesus while he was in exile on the island of Patmos. He was exiled there because of his faith. And John recorded this revelation, and then he distributed it to the churches. And while it is a letter, uh, the genre of the book is mostly apocalyptic. And that word might sound scary, but it's simply a word that means that refers to the last things or end times. The book of Revelation is the last chapter in God's story of redemption. And it unfolds how God will bring about the ultimate defeat of evil the vindication of the saints, and the restoration of all things. And because of its apocalyptic style, there's a couple of important things to remember as we walk through the book of Revelation that I want to point out to you. Think of these as the ground rules for reading the book of Revelation. The first is that there is a lot of symbolism in the book of Revelation. There are uh, numbers and other symbols that are prevalent. Now, symbolism does not imply that Revelation isn't talking about real things, okay? The symbols themselves aren't to be taken literally, but they do have a literal spiritual or physical meaning. Does that make sense? For example, later on, and next week we're going to get into this, but in chapter 1, verse 12, John is going to see one that, that looks like the Son of Man amongst the seven golden lampstands. Now, John is not writing this so that we can start being on the lookout for literal seven golden lampstands. The number seven, as you know, we come to find out in the book of Revelation, is symbolic for the number of completion. And we're told later in chapter 1 that the lampstands represent the church. So when we get the seven lampstands, what's that? that is symbolic for the entire church. So when John sees the Son of Man, Jesus, standing amongst the seven golden lampstands, what it means is that Jesus is with his church, all of his people, right? So that's the kind of symbolism we're going to see throughout the book of Revelation. So it doesn't mean that it's just you know, a fairy tale and that, it, and that it's meaningless. There is a real meaning behind the symbolism, but we have to be able to discern and understand what is the meaning behind the symbolism, okay? Uh, the second thing is that The book of Revelation is not in chronological order. So, Revelation describes the last days and the final judgment from the perspective of heaven and from the perspective of earth. The the scenes in Revelation shift back and forth from heaven to earth, and it's intended to give God's people a realistic picture of what will unfold on earth while also making us aware that there's a spiritual reality behind it all. In heaven. 
And the book of Revelation will describe some of the same events multiple times in different lenses. It's one way to think about it would be if you're looking at an object under a microscope, and as you adjust the power on the microscope, the object is going to look different. You're still looking at the same object, but as, you, uh, as the magnification is increased or decreased, you're going to see different features of this object, and the book of Revelation is going to do that as we walk through it. Okay. The third thing I want to point out about the, the, the ground rules for reading the book of Revelation is that Apocalyptic literature is very similar to prophetic literature, like Isaiah or Ezekiel or Malachi. And in prophetic literature, there is something called forthtelling and foretelling. So forthtelling is an exhortation for the present, and foretelling is revealing something that's going to come in the future. Most of us, when we hear the word prophecy, our brains go to foretelling the future, and we think the prophecy is only about the future. But actually, when we look at, prof- the, uh, at prophetic literature and Scripture, more often than not, the prophetic literature and Scripture is a foretelling. It is giving exhortation for the present rather than merely revealing things that are going to happen in the future. So that means that while Revelation does reveal events that will happen in the future, it is primarily instruction for the church in the here and the now. It's relevant. We're not just to sit here. It's not just a book that we read so that we can wildly speculate about what the end times are going to be like when Jesus comes back. That's not the purpose of the book. Danny Aiken is a pastor and a commentator. He said this. He said, The purpose of Revelation is not to stimulate our imagination to wild speculative interpretations. It is to inspire and motivate us to faithfulness and obedience. So this leads to another question that I want to answer before we dive in. And the question is, why are we studying this book now? Why are we studying this book as a church? Verse 3 of chapter 1 says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. There's two things. I think verse 3 gives us the reasons why we're studying this book right now. First of all, It's because those who hear and obey what is written in it are blessed. And second of all, because the time is near. As I said a moment ago, Revelation is not just describing events in the distant future. Much of the book depicts events that are unfolding before us right now. We are living in the last days. The last days were inaugurated at the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we're now living in those days. And those events will culminate in a final judgment upon Jesus' return, which is also described in the book of Revelation. And what becomes clear throughout the book of Revelation is that the last days are not pretty. It will become increasingly difficult to remain a faithful Christian. There's a real spiritual war in heaven, and the consequences are being played out on earth. Satan is making war on the church using temptation, the deception of false teaching, and especially persecution to pressure God's people into compromise. But none of this is happening outside the purview of God's control. Satan only has influence insofar as God allows him. He's on a leash, okay? The main message of the letter uh, uh, to the church... I'd summarize it like this. Although it may appear that evil is triumphing, God is working out His purposes to bring about the ultimate defeat of evil and the final reward of His saints. Let me read that again. Although it may appear that evil is triumphing, God is working out His purposes to bring about the ultimate defeat of evil and the final reward of the saints. I think that is the overall message of Revelation to the church. So, the book of Revelation is a call to God's people to faithfully endure in light of this. The blessing that's promised here in Revelation 1-3 is that those who faithfully endure will enjoy the blessings of Revelation chapter 21 and 22. The new heavens and the new earth in the presence of God forever. However, those who compromise 
and throw in with the world, we'll face God's judgment. So revelation is a call to faithfully endure. And it's relevant to the church in every single age. The pressure to conform to the world and to compromise our faith in Christ will only increase as we draw nearer to Jesus' return. Right here in America, the privileged status that Christians once enjoyed is now a memory, right? As the cost increases, we will all face a choice. Will we remain faithful? Will you remain faithful? Will you continue to put your hope in God even if it costs you your job, your family, your life? The book of Revelation is God's gift to enable us to do that so that we can endure to the end and be there on that day before his throne, singing glory and honor and power and dominion be to your name. We can faithfully endure by hearing and heeding the message of Revelation. The first eight verses of this book are thematic, and they... They unpack truths that come up throughout the book of Revelation. And so this morning, I just want to spend our time pointing you to three glorious truths in these first eight verses that will help God's people to endure. And the first one I want to draw your attention to is there in verse 4 and 5. And it's that the triune God gives us grace and peace to endure. The triune God gives us grace and peace to endure. Now, Revelation, as I, as I said, it starts out in verse 3 with the promise of blessing for those who keep what is written. And the very next verse promises that God will supply the very grace we need to do just that. Grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come. God gives us the grace to persevere in our faith amidst tribulation And he gives us the inner peace that surpasses all understanding amidst external turmoil. In other words, God gives us in verse 4 what he demands of us in verse 3. Do you see that? God gives us in verse 4 what he demands of us in verse 3. See, don't make the mistake of thinking that Jesus has given us a clean slate by his death, and now it's up to you to earn your place in heaven by enduring the gauntlet of suffering and tribulation that's going to come your way. And if you can just hold on long enough and grit your teeth and make it to the end, then you'll earn your spot in heaven. That is not what I am saying, and that is not what the book of Revelation teaches. Because that would mean that our salvation ultimately rests on our shoulders, and we would get the glory for it. Look how, look how strong I am, God. Look how able I was to endure. I was able to weather the storm. I was able to stand up to the powers of evil. None of us can do that. None of us can say that. The reality is, is that we are saved by grace through faith so that no one may boast, Ephesians 2 says. God's grace grants us both pardon from sin and the power to endure by faith. So we're totally dependent upon God to help us endure. That's why John starts out in verse 4, the very first words out of his mouth after he calls the church to obey is grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. The Psalms repeatedly teach us to pray along these lines. Psalm 119.36, the psalmist cries out, Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Psalm 86.11, teach me your ways, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Church, our heart won't be inclined to God's testimonies. Our hearts will not fear his name unless God does it, unless God helps us to do that. So yes, we must faithfully endure Those who hold fast to their faith in Jesus will be saved, but we do it all in the strength that God supplies. And in this way, God receives all the glory and honor and praise, and we are the glad beneficiaries of His grace. Now, how practically does the triune God strengthen us with grace and peace? Well, let's just look a little bit closer at this passage here. So, the Father is described as him who is and who was and who is to come, emphasizing his transcendent rule over 
all things across space and time. This means that he orchestrates and reigns over all events in heaven and on earth, even the tribulations that we endure. Those things are not accidents that are outside of God's control. God is not a reactionary God who reacts to things that the devil is doing. God is sovereign over every event in our lives, over every event in the universe, even the tribulations that come our way. He's on the throne at the start of the book of Revelation, and He will be on the throne at the end in Revelation 22. There's a whole lot of mess that happens in between Revelation 1 and Revelation 22, and we are living in that mess. It's not pretty, but God reigns supreme over all of it. He's on the throne, and what peace that brings to God's people in the midst of tribulation and temptations and trials. God is sovereign over all of it. Simply knowing this brings great peace to us. And then we read, Grace to you and peace from the seven spirits who are before His throne. This is in reference to the Holy Spirit with that seven highlighting that He's present everywhere and in perfection. The Holy Spirit is with us in all of our afflictions as the Comforter. He brings us the grace and the peace that God promises. He dwells within us as His people, causing us to bear the fruit of the Spirit, and He sustains our faith moment by moment. The fact that you wake up still loving God and calling upon Him as Abba Father is a direct result of the ministry of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. That's the activity of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And then in verse 5, grace from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Jesus is the faithful witness who knows all our sufferings and temptations. He perfectly revealed the Father to us. Colossians 1.15 says that He is the image of the invisible God. He was the faithful witness who bore witness to who God is. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And his testimony was sealed by his blood. That word for witness is the the Greek word martis, and it's where we get the term martyr from. Jesus stood trial before Pilate and was sentenced to death for his faithful witness. But he was vindicated by God three days later, rising from the dead as the firstborn from the dead, meaning the first of many. And now he is exalted as ruler of kings on the earth. So he was the faithful witness unto death. He's the firstborn from the dead. And now he's exalted as ruler of the kings on the earth. And he has set a pattern that every single one of us as believers will follow. We too are called to be faithful witnesses to Jesus' death and resurrection, even unto death. But we do so with the promise of knowing that because Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, those who are in Christ will be raised with Him, and that we will be exalted with Him, reigning with Him forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth, ruler ruling over the kings of the earth. We are called to follow in this pattern that Jesus sets for us as the church. Knowing this gives us the grace and peace that we need to faithfully endure because we can't do so in our own strength. We are, and because we are totally dependent on the grace and the peace that God supplies to help us endure, it's vital that we devote ourselves to prayer. Too often, our prayer lives are reactive rather than proactive. We pray when we need something or after we've sinned. And a lackluster prayer life indicates a lack of awareness of just how high the stakes are and just how real our adversary is. I'm afraid many Christians are being lulled to sleep in a sense, with a sense of complacency setting over them. And this complacency makes many Christians susceptible to false teaching easily seduced by temptation and ill-prepared to endure the difficult days that lie ahead for the church. One of the goals of the book of Revelation is to shock slumbering believers awake to the spiritual realities around us. 
The images that you see throughout the book of Revelation, like beasts and trumpets and bowls of wrath, are in part intended to jolt us to our spiritual senses, to shock us awake, to give us a picture of the reality of the spiritual warfare that's actually happening around us because we tend to sleepwalk through this life because we're inundated with distractions. Ephesians 6.12, Paul writes this, he says, he, he reminds us, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And then he exhorts us to put on the armor of God, and he ends that section by, section by saying in verse 18, pray at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. There's this vigilance that God's Word calls us to because we really are in the midst of a spiritual war. We can't just sleepwalk. If any, for those of you who've ever been in the military, you don't just sleepwalk through a combat zone. You're on high alert, right? When you're in a combat zone, you've got to be ready. You can't just sleep at your post. You've got to be vigilant. And in the same way, we have an enemy who's prowling like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And so one of the ways that we keep vigilance is through prayer. We pray that God would help us to remain faithful. We call upon him, unite my heart to fear your name. God, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Those are the kind of prayers we need to be praying for our own lives and for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We must remain sober-minded and constant in prayer because we have a real adversary. And the triune God stands ready and willing to give us the grace and the peace that we need to faithfully endure. We just need to ask and call upon Him. The second truth I want to point out in this passage that helps us to faithfully endure is in verse 5 and 6. Jesus is the Lamb who was sacrificially slain and the Son of Man who eternally reigns. Nothing will strengthen the trembling knees of Christians like stepping back to behold Jesus Christ in all of His glorious splendor. Just taking our eyes off of our circumstances and fixing them on Jesus. And meditating on who he is and on what he's done. I just want us to take a few moments to do that, especially in light of what's revealed about him in these passages, in in these two verses right here. The book of Revelation describes Jesus as both the lamb who was slain and as the son of man. And each of these titles conveys glorious truth about who Jesus is. Just take a minute to, to consider what we're told here says that to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Sometimes we just need to be reminded that Jesus loves us. There can be times in life where that is difficult to believe, can't there? Maybe when we've backslidden into sin and we feel racked with guilt. Maybe when we're enduring tribulation and we feel abandoned. Perhaps you're there this morning. You're having a hard time believing that Jesus loves you. That's why it's so important for us to turn to God's living, active Word. Because God's Word points us to the cross where His love was proved and put on display. Verse 5 says that He, has, he loves us and He's freed us from our sins by His blood. The precious blood of the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, Jesus, was poured out to redeem us from the wages of our sin. Our sin deserves death. We've all broken God's law. And there is a day of judgment coming, and there's no excuse we'll be able to muster. Everyone will stand before Him. And left to ourselves, we would only be deserving of condemnation and of judgment. But God loves us so much that He sent His Son Jesus, the Lamb of God, to come and die 
on the cross in our place so that we could be freed from the penalty of our sins by His blood. His blood was poured out so that we could be redeemed, so that we could be set free, so that we would not have to pay the due penalty for our sin. We're freed from the eternal debt that our sins have incurred incurred through the blood of Jesus, which means that if you are a Christian, if you're in Christ and trusting in Christ and His death and resurrection, then you are not loved by God based upon your performance, but based upon the finished work of Christ upon the cross. We need to know that and cling to that if we're going to faithfully endure. Because the love of Christ towards us is the very thing that enables us to love God and others. 1 John says that we love Him because He first loved us. If we lose sight of the cross and the fact that we're loved by God, not based on our performance, but based on the finished work of of the cross, there's no way we're going to be able to faithfully endure. We'll be overcome by discouragement way too easily. And there's no way that we can faithfully and consistently love God and love people if we're uncertain of God's love for us. I want to say that again. We can't faithfully and consistently love God and love people if we are uncertain of God's love for us. That's why you must look to the cross for the proof of God's love for you. He's displayed it there. It's not based on your performance. Church, we need to be reminded of that. That's what presses us on. That's what helps us to endure difficult days. Maybe that's the main thing that you need to hear this morning that Jesus loves you and he's freed you from your sins. Jesus is the lamb who was slain, but Jesus is also the son of man to whom belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. And I use that title, the son of man, not only because Jesus is explicitly called the son of man later on in chapter 1, but because verses 6 and 7 are a clear allusion to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And so in Daniel 7, the prophet Daniel is shown a vision that represents all the kingdoms of the world that will be raised up with its rulers. And these kingdoms will rebel against God and wear out the saints of the Most High, chapter 7 says. But these kingdoms and their dominion will be taken away and the Son of Man will be given dominion. Listen to verses 13 and 14. Daniel writes this, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." So what we see prophesied in Daniel 7, 13, and 14 comes to pass here in Revelation. Jesus is the promised Son of Man whose kingdom shall not be destroyed. Do you notice how similar the language is there in Revelation 1, 6, and 7? He's made us a kingdom, priest to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Jesus is the Son of Man. Jesus is the one to whom belongs all glory and dominion. And He's reigning in heaven right now. So though it may appear that evil is, re- that evil is triumphing, it's all a part of God's plan. Every king and kingdom will crumble before Jesus upon His return. So we don't need to lose heart in tribulations because our king is on the throne. And that leads us to the third truth to help us faithfully endure the last one this morning. And that's that Jesus will return to vindicate His saints and vanquish evil. Jesus will return to vindicate His saints and vanquish evil. Look look at verse 7 with me. John writes, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so... Amen. So, verse 7 starts with this word, behold. 
That word means to look. Look, he is coming with the clouds. And this is another reference to Daniel 7.13 where the Son of Man comes on the clouds to receive his kingdom. You know, in many ways, Jesus' first coming was incognito. He was born of a virgin in a tiny town called Bethlehem to a poor family. The Son of Man came as the Lamb of God to die for our sins, and He went largely unnoticed by many people at His first coming. But His second coming will not be lost on anyone, Revelation tells us. It will be very visible. In fact, Revelation 1.7 says, Every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. When Jesus was being questioned before the Jewish Sanhedrin at His sham trial, they asked Him, Tell us, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus responded in Matthew 26, 64. He said, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. You see, up to that point, Jesus had come as the Lamb of God. The next time they saw him, Jesus was telling him, telling them, they would see him as the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. And they knew exactly what he meant. They knew that Jesus was identifying himself as the Son of Man of Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. And in a rage, they killed him for it. But in doing so, they were only carrying out God's sovereign plan. And when Jesus returns... Those who pierced him along with everyone else will see him and will not be able to deny that Jesus is Lord. Because as Philippians 2 tells us, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the Son of Man, the eternal King that rules over every king. And that day will be a glorious day for those who love and trust in Jesus, but it will be a terrible day for those who do not. Verse 7 says that all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Many people will mourn as the righteous and just wrath of God is poured out on them because they refused to obey the gospel. The good news is that if you are here this morning, Jesus is inviting you to come to Him and to receive mercy. You can be freed from your sins by His blood through faith in Him today. You can call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And you will not face the wrath of the Lamb on Judgment Day. You will only receive the mercy of God. You will dwell with Him forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth. So my question for you this morning is, are you confident that you are saved? Are you trusting in Jesus, in His atoning death and resurrection alone for your salvation? Where is your hope in for Judgment Day? What are you going to point to as the reason that you can stand before God when you stand before Him on that day? If you are looking to point to your own track record or your own good works, you will fall short on Judgment Day. And there will only be the expectation of God's wrath for you. And I'm pleading with you here this morning, hear me, hear me say, that won't cut it on Judgment Day. Trust in Jesus. He's the only way, the truth, and the life. He's the only way that we can be saved. Don't leave here this morning if you are not certain that you have placed your faith in Christ and in Christ alone. As I said earlier, my heart breaks at the thought that, that there would be anyone here sitting in this room who will wail upon the return of Jesus in horror and in sorrow. I want everyone here to rejoice at the return of Jesus, not to be in horror at the return of Jesus as God's wrath is poured out on them. But that is the future for those who refuse to obey the gospel. Please don't put this off or assume that you can deal with this later the Bible tells us that Jesus' return is going to come like a thief in the night. Jesus himself says in Matthew 24, 37 and 38, he says, As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days, when they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, until that day when Noah entered the ark 
and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. People were just carrying on with their lives, unconcerned about the things of God at all. Living their lives. Noah was trying to tell them, repent. They didn't listen. And then one day the flood came. And Jesus says in Matthew 24, that is what the return of the Son of Man is going to be like. So if you're in this room this morning, I'm pleading with you to hear and heed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't be caught sleeping. You don't need to do that. You don't need to be caught unaware like the people in Noah's day. And for Christians, the day of Jesus' return is not a day to dread, but it's the day that we long for. Because it's the day when evil will forever be vanquished and when God's people will be vindicated. All the tribulations, all the temptations, all the trials will come to an end forever. Revelation 21 and 22 gives us a picture of how we will dwell with God forever in the new heavens and in the new earth. And we'll have new resurrected bodies that will never wear out and that will never die. There will be no more death. There will be no more sin. There will be no more evil, no more separation from God. It will be eternal bliss and joy and peace that we can't even begin to fathom or imagine. And it's our hope and the surety of that day that enables us to faithfully endure the tribulations and the temptations in the here and the now. Those who faithfully endure by hearing and heeding the message of revelation will enjoy the blessings of the new heavens and the new earth. I want to close by just giving you two implications for the church in light of Jesus' return. There's many, many implications, but I just want to give you two. The first is this. We should put our hope in the return of Christ, not in policies and politicians. We should put our return, hope in the return of Christ. And there's nothing wrong with voting and being engaged in civics. And just like we did this morning, Scripture calls on us to pray for political leaders, for rulers, for authorities. But we do so keeping in mind that there's only one kingdom that will last forever. And there's only one king who can bring about the peace that we long for. And his name is Jesus. We don't need to panic when this or that politician loses or wins an election. I'm going to say that again. We don't need to panic when this or that politician loses or wins an election. We really don't need to panic. Because here's the deal. When Christians start putting hope in policies and politicians... It turns the temperature of the debate way up. And we start seeing people with different political views as enemies rather than people made in God's image. Christian, you do not need to be threatened by the other political party. You can disagree with the other political party, but you don't need to be threatened by them. Jesus has not been dethroned. Nor will he be in the next election cycle or the one after that or the one after that. No matter what the Supreme Court, no matter what edicts they hand down, Jesus will not be dethroned. He's still the ruler of the kings on earth and he is coming back. So you can engage in civics while loving your political enemy. And I want to urge us to specifically be mindful of how we speak to one another and how we speak about politics in light of these things, okay? Don't let these issues be a cause for division amongst the church. If we're living in light of Jesus' return, we won't let these issues cause division. As soon as they start becoming divisive, we've taken our eyes off the kingdom of God. We're not putting our hope in the return of Christ. We're putting our hope in the kingdom of man. And we need to stop and repent and fix our eyes back on Jesus who's still on his throne and who's coming back soon. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Are the words that you're saying and the way that you're saying those words giving grace to those who hear? And yes, that includes what you post online. That includes the things that you share, the things that you retweet. 
be mindful of how you're, of how you're speaking and of the witness to Christ that you're, that you're presenting. The second implication that I want to point us to in light of Jesus' imminent return is that we should warn people of coming judgment and call on them to trust in Jesus. I think this is the most obvious one. I mean, just let me just read verse 7 again. <laughs> Look, behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, amen. Jesus has not returned yet because God is giving people time to repent. In the meantime, He has called us to be His witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So why should we do that other than the fact that Jesus has commanded us to? Why should we warn people of coming judgment and call on them to trust in Jesus? Well, a couple of reasons. First, because Jesus is worthy of the worship of all peoples. And so if we love and we value Jesus, then we will share in His desire to be praised by all peoples. But secondly, because we care about the souls of people, that's why we should warn people of coming judgment and call on them to trust in Jesus, because we actually care about people. The Apostle Paul expressed his burden for the unbelieving Jews to be saved in Romans 9, 2 and 3. He said, I have great sorrow an unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my kinsmen according to the flesh. That, that passage is deeply convicting to me. Because those are, are the words of a man who loves people. A people, keep in mind, who were the primary source of his persecution. No one caused Paul more suffering than his kinsmen according to the flesh, the Jews. They, pri they were the primary source of his persecution. And yet here he is in Romans 9 saying, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. If it were possible for me to be cut off from Christ so that they can be saved, I would do it, is what he's saying. That's mind-blowing. This is a question I'm not just asking to you, I'm asking to myself this morning, but how much do you love people? Does your love for the lost show up in your prayer life? Are you pleading for the salvation of unbelieving neighbors and family members of unreached people groups that have no access to the gospel? Do you care that there are people who are perishing apart from Christ? How much do you care? That's a question we all need to like sit on. Maybe just go home this afternoon and really think about that. I mean, how much are we living in light of Jesus' imminent return? It's easy for us to say that we care, but if we're not routinely going before God and, and praying for the salvation of the lost, and if we're not actually going out and sharing the gospel, it begs the question, do we care? Do we actually care? Do we love the perishing enough to put our necks on the line by warning them of coming judgment and calling them to trust in Christ? And make no mistake, it's costly to do so. Jesus told us it would be. Being a faithful witness will mean facing rejection. And the cost could be even higher in the days to come. But my goodness, what an opportunity we have before us right now. It's not illegal to share the gospel in this country. Did you know that? It's not illegal to share the gospel in this city. We have a window in which we are literally protected by the Constitution of the United States to do so openly and freely without fear of getting thrown into jail or losing our jobs or having our children taken away. Like We can freely share the gospel. Let's not just let this window, because it might not stay open forever, church. Let's boldly go out and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and warn people of coming judgment and invite them to receive the free gift of God's salvation. There's a couple of opportunities for you to do this. If maybe you hear that and you're like, 
man, I want to, Jared, but I don't know how to start. I don't know what to do. That sounds really intimidating for me. I've never been taught how to share the gospel. That's what we're here for. We want to come alongside you and help equip you to do that. There's a couple of, of things you can take part in where you can get equipped uh, coming up this coming Friday. We have something called Gospel and Grub that we do on the second and fourth Fridays of each month. And we gather up. We'll, we're going to get together at about 6 o'clock, meet right here at the church building. And we're going to go out uh, over in the, by the Eastern Market Metro. And we're just going to ask people. Uh, we go out for about an hour and we uh, ask people how we can be praying for them. And then people who are open to prayer will start gospel conversations with them and, and Lord willing, share the gospel. We'll do that for about an hour. And then afterwards, we all go out to eat together and just share about you know, what we saw God do and share stories. Uh, it's one of my favorite things that we do as a church. And, and I'd encourage you to come and you can just, if, you can just come and, and, and observe and follow along. And I'll pair you up with somebody who's experienced in evangelism. And if you're too nervous to actually share the gospel, that's fine. Just come and just go with us. Um, that's one step. And then another one is uh, on October 31st, Reformation Day. Uh, we're going to be gathering together here. Uh, Halloween, I know. Uh, on October 31st, we're going to be gathering here. And there's a lot of trick-or-treating that happens in this area uh, on Halloween. And so we're going to be doing a little outreach event right out there on the sidewalk. We're going to have apple cider that we're going to give out and uh, some candy. And we're going to have our tent set up. And we're just going to... Uh, you know, pray for people, and we'll hand out gospel tracts and things like that, and Lord willing, uh, get into some good conversations with neighbors and share the gospel. And so that's another way that you can come and just practically apply what we've talked about. So I'd encourage you to put those things on your calendar, and those are ways you can just right now go ahead and go, okay, I'm not just going to talk about it, I'm going to be about it, and I'm going to apply what I've learned in God's Word this morning to my life. And I want to urge you to do that because I'm not just standing up here so that you can hear me talk for an hour and then go home and, you know, nothing's changed in your life. Like, I want you guys to hear God's word, let it take root in your heart, and then grow in Christ-likeness and be changed, okay? All right, well, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as we uh, close out our time uh, this morning. Um, and the worship team's going uh, to play, and uh, maybe there's... Uh, uh, maybe there's something going on in your life and you just need to pray with somebody. So we're going to have a couple of prayer counselors that are going to be through those double doors back there in the back. Um, so if there's any way that we can be praying for you, uh, maybe you're just overwhelmed with discouragement. Maybe, you know, when I was talking earlier about you just feel uncertain of God's love for you. Man, we would love to just come alongside you and pray for you, pray with you. Uh, or perhaps you're here this morning and you are unsure and uncertain of whether or not you're truly saved and born again. Maybe you've never given your life to Christ and you want to talk to somebody about how to take that next step. You can go through those double doors and, and uh, pray with somebody in the back and we'd love to help you begin to take next steps uh, on that journey. Um, so I'm going to pray and then uh, the worship team is going to lead us in a closing song. God, we love you. I thank you for blessing us with your word. God, we know that we're blessed because we've read the words of this prophecy out loud. And now, Lord, I pray that you would give us the grace that we need to be able to hear it with ears to hear and to apply it to our lives. God, I pray that you would bless your people by or just helping us apply what we've learned, helping us to faithfully endure to the end. God, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.